we went to visit them and listen to them sing in the classroom, and you cry. <laughs> they wow. just make you cry, and you you get goosebumps, and it's so powerfully emotional. I was hooked. Welcome to Underscore, where we explore the innovative music of artists who create beyond the boundaries of classical music. I'm Chrysanthi. And I'm Thomas. And this is the classically trained, but genre omnivorous, musical worlds we live in that we want to share with you. Each week, a new guest takes us into their area of special interest to explore their creative process, their music, and their story. Then we invite the guests to our roundtable and debate a pressing topic in the music world. Today, that topic is, is there such thing as good music or bad music? And finally, we leave you with our current musical recommendations for the week. But first, we are so excited to introduce our guest. Daniel Ho is a six-time Grammy-winning artist, producer, composer, multi-instrumentalist, and audio engineer from Honolulu, Hawaii. His first instruments were organ, classical guitar, and piano, and today he is also known for being a Hawaiian slack-key guitarist and ukulele artist. But Daniel is primarily a composer. As a composer and recording artist, he has played almost two dozen different instruments on his own albums. One thing that stands out about Daniel is his unwavering sincerity. Simply put, he makes what he likes, and his projects and awards truly reflect that from his billboard-topping jazz group in the 90s to his recent rock collaboration and to his Grammy wins and nominations in Hawaiian music, pop instrumental, and world music categories. We're currently listening to his Grammy-nominated Between the Sky and Prairie. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So we've just been listening to your song, Between the Sky and Prairie, from your Grammy-nominated album with the Grasslands Ensemble. Grasslands is a Mongolian traditional ensemble, is that correct? And they play tra- totally traditional music. Yes. And what draws you to traditional world music? I like seeking out the origins of music. And it started about six years ago when I um, began working with Taiwanese Aboriginal musicians. Uh, with a record company called Wind Music in Taiwan. And we visited all the different areas and drank Aboriginal wine and and went to the mountain tribes and beach tribes. And it was just an amazing experience. And they use kind of the same notes that we do in Western music, but in a completely different way. It doesn't conform to our standards of uh, resolution and harmony and whatever. They just sing uh, what makes them feel. So hmm. it, I see it as like a, a, a very pure form of communicating emotion with sound rather than music specifically. There was this tribe, the Taiwu Ancient Ballads Troupe, and it's a children's choir by um, Ping Dong in Taiwan. And we went to visit them and listen to them sing in the classroom, and you cry. <laughs> they wow. just make you cry, and you're, you get goosebumps and no idea what they're saying. But it's so powerfully emotional. I was hooked. And that was about maybe four four years ago. And now, you know, I'm, I studied classical and jazz music and whatever we play and study. And uh, world music, they might, and it, a lot of it is just pentatonic scales, like the Mongolian music, the Aboriginal music. But the way they put notes together doesn't go in any kind of order that we use them in, like blues or pop music. And so it doesn't sound like a pentatonic scale. And then you got to figure out 
what what is this? Why do I feel this way? And so my fascination with world music really comes from seeking out the origins of music that uh, in, in different cultures that didn't conform to the way we analyze it in Western music. A pentatonic scale being a five-note scale for those listeners who mm-hmm. might be wondering. Like um, the black notes uh, the on black a notes key- on a yes. keyboard. Yes. And um, a scale that commonly pops up amongst many folk music around the world. Yes. Yeah. And you, so you're saying that you found influence through being freed by these other these, these folk musics. Yeah, because I've been, you know, at it for 20-something years. And then, you know, if you kind of hear and do the same things over and over, I mean, guilty of rewriting, paraphrasing the same songs over and over just because your mind naturally, it's an instinct. You naturally go to certain things or you like this voicing you use it. Hearing how organic and natural their traditional music was. I, I really focus on traditional. I want to know why these songs have lasted thousands or hundreds of years. And there's a reason, there's a story, there's a history, there's all kinds of things around it. But having said that, I, I'm, I'm not an ethnomusicologist at all. I don't know anything about, not intentionally, I'm just not that smart. <laughs> and I didn't study that much. Um, but I like to, and it's kind of neat in a way, I embrace that and I, I, I look at the notes. I hear the music and the sounds and understand it purely from a sonic perspective. And then they sing words I don't understand. They're communicating something, and then I just react to what they're communicating musically, musically. purely. So, pineapple mango, not just two delicious fruits, <laughs> but just also a charming, lovely piece that you've written that is all over YouTube. It is so <laughs> catchy. And not only are your recordings of it on YouTube, but also a ton of covers. Like, it seems people like learning this song almost as much as they like listening to your version of it. So um, we are wondering, can you teach us how to play it? Sure. Okay. Everyone is getting out their instruments right now. I'm pulling out my toy piano. Cassandra is grabbing her violin, and we have the tiny tenor, not Pavarotti miniature man, but the (laughs) instrument, the tiny tenor coming out. It has a very simple verse. The melody goes... just repeats again. Fantastic. We got it.
I want to ask you a question. You are proudly a jack of all trades. You are very self-taught. You do pretty much everything. Can you talk more about that and why it's important to you? The first reason was uh, financial. Uh, after I was on a record label for about five years, it was just a situation that I wanted to get out of. Decided to start my own, and I don't have, didn't have a whole heck of a lot of money, but enough to start a vanity press. But I couldn't afford to pay hundred dollars an hour to hire musicians. I couldn't afford to go into studios. I couldn't afford to hire a mandolin part, for instance. So I went to Guitar Center. I want to use mandolin for hundred bucks. I played it. It's like you know, that's not too bad. And then I started using it on more and more songs. And then I bought a shaker. Then I bought an udu. Then I bought an a bass, and, and I, I started working. And then I realized, you know what? I'm teaching myself on the job. And it was a slow process. And I'm still learning, but I'm always trying to learn how to achieve the desired result. This is very contrary to how a lot of classically trained um, and other studied musicians are brought up. We're brought up to become a master of one instrument. So it's not by choice that I'm not good at any one instrument. I, I've had a fascination with different instruments along the way, and I kept changing because Prince was very popular when I was growing up. And he played, they say, 28 instruments or whatever he played. And I thought that was neat. But I also find a lot of inspiration and understanding in playing different instruments. So if you play bass, you play your guitar differently. If you play bass, you play piano differently. If you play drums, you have a better sense of rhythm than you would if you didn't. And in that sense, they all contribute. But if you diversify that way, then you, you know, I could never play my ukulele the way you play violin because I have not focused on it. I haven't put the hours into master an instrument, so I don't have a deep understanding of, of anything. Um, but the going back to the philosophy of seeing a note through from beginning to end, what I realized over the course of you know decades of doing this is like, it's the long route. It really is. Because if I had the money or ability to work with a manager, work with an agent, whatever, and have the greatest engineer in Los Angeles working on my album and the greatest photographer taking pictures and video, whatever, then maybe I would have had a really great project 20 years ago that was of the standards that I might be able to achieve now. But you know, time doesn't wait. For us, it took me that long to learn how to mix an album like Between the Sky and Prairie um, and find those sounds. So you were the original DIY. Kind of. You know, it started in the mid-90s. That's when home recording, digital recording with the ADAT and Tascam DA88 machines 
of recording on VHS tapes and uh, different kinds of videotapes took hold, and then you know, then you could start recording in your computer, and that allowed us to actually have home studios that were you could get pretty close to or pretty close your studio quality stuff just in your bedroom. Now it's easy and inexpensive. Back then it wasn't. You know, so many years have passed, and darn it. <laughs> you know, I love something that I read from an interview in which you say instrument building is like writing a song with wood. <laughs> I love that quote. And we are currently staring at a few of your instruments here in the studio. Do you mind um, demonstrating a couple of them? Sure. Daniel is reaching to his bag and he's pulling out this beautiful Ukulele, is that is correct? Is that the Spalted Mango Tiny Tenor? Is <laughs> this that is the... the Spalted Mango Tiny Tenor. That's a great name. And um, this particular instrument is called the Official Pineapple Mango <laughs> Ukulele because um, it's mango and it's kind of shaped like a pineapple. But and it's very shiny. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just a production model. It's not expensive. It retails is for $700. Mm. Um, but it's all solid wood. And this is an instrument that Pepe Romero Jr., who's the greatest instrument luthier, well, that I've ever met or worked with, Pepe and I, I conceptualized and Pepe realized with his design. What I came to him with was the idea like, okay, people love the ukulele. It actually outsold acoustic guitars last year. 1.7 million ukuleles sold and 1.6 million acoustic guitars sold. So it's, you know, kind of gaining in popularity. It's a fun instrument. It's a social instrument. You can have fun with it because it's, you know, unpretentious. That sounded very different and unique than what I'm used to hearing. So what we did was we took all the qualities of an ukulele that are attractive and we made a checklist and we addressed everyone and tried to make it better. And the instrument caught on. So Pepe is mainly a hand-built, you know, he builds $14,000 classical guitars, whatever, but he couldn't fill the orders. And as a result, he started a company called Romero Creations where he does production models. You know, you go to a workshop and, and other people are playing tiny tenors and it's really a, a great honor. So rumor has it that early on in your career, you were orchestrating B-films, arranging music, elevator music, doing all these things that you don't currently do. How do you feel about those? Absolutely necessary. And I'm not the same musician I was back then. And that suited my ability. And it suited where I was as, I'll use the word brand, because that's a huge part of being able to do certain kinds of work, right? Not, not just your ability, um, but I arranged hundreds of Muzak songs, like elevator music versions of yesterday or whatever, with vibes. And I mean, this is back in the day. This is in the 90s, where one play on Muzak in the main environmental channel would 30 million people around the world hear it. Wow. We're talking airports, elevators, grocery stores, mm -hmm. everything. I transcribed every bass line, every keyboard part, every guitar part, and recreated them. So what better way to learn than to take apart all these hits? Mm -hmm. 
lightning round questions. We ask the same questions to guests every week, and we want a fast, quick answer. First one is, what genre is your music? Uh, two years ago, it was classical. Last year, it was uh, stadium rock, and then um, Mongolian world music this year. Great. Performance ritual. I play through my entire show the day of, and I use Amis Rondo in ukulele piece as a technical warm-up. A modern tech tool that's extremely helpful to your practice. Yamaha P115 keyboard, which has a built-in metronome, and it plays like a piano. It costs 600 bucks, and everything translates directly to a piano. A failure that turned out for the best. My last marriage. <laughs> <laughs> and life has been absolutely amazing since then, but you don't know it at the time. Um, something besides music that you're obsessed with right now? Finding a better way to live. Mm. Ooh. <laughs> okay, let's pause for effect on that one. <laughs> and last but not least, a piece of art that changed your life. The tiny tenor. Ukulele. Oh, your own tiny tenor. Oh, Pepe Romero built it. It was just an idea I had, and it really is his expertise as a luthier. So he, he's an incredible artist. So I don't want to take credit for it as a... <laughs> right, right. Did tiny tenors exist before yours? No. So this is the first yes. tiny tenor. Oh, I get it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Great. Great. Thanks so much, Daniel. You can find Daniel online at danielho.com, Daniel Ho Creations on Facebook, at Daniel underscore Ho underscore Creations on Instagram, and at Daniel Ho 888 on Twitter. All the links will be in the show notes. Of course, we'll also include links to buy Daniel's albums. One easy way to get the show notes immediately and have access to bonus content is to join our Facebook group, Underscore Society, which you can simply search on Facebook. And now it's time for some Counterpoint. Counterpoint is the segment where we discuss controversial topics relevant to the music world. This week we're wondering, is there such thing as good music or bad music? And we have invited Daniel Ho back to join our roundtable discussion. What do you think, Daniel? Wow, I have really strong opinions on Fire this topic. Fire away. Which I... Don't hold back. <laughs> usually keep to myself. Oh, do oh, not. not. Not here. Not, not here. now. Okay. You know what I think? And I, I wrestle with this a lot. I think it's just not that black and white. I believe there's music for everyone. And by that, I mean some things that don't connect with me, music that may lack certain kinds of melodies and I'm listening for certain things because of where I am as a person connects to a whole lot of other people and if it makes them happy and uh, you know affects them emotionally or it has, you know connects with them in some way then that's good music for them and for me it wouldn't be so I think to each their own yeah you know for me I, I think that I do believe that there is some sort of version of good or bad like better music and worse music but that does not mean you shouldn't like something or not like something for those reasons. I love a lot of bad things. Bad sci-fi. Love it. I live for bad <laughs> sci-fi. Maybe it's, gr it's actually great in that way. Thomas, I'm curious. How do you determine whether something is better music or worse music? I would say there's just an execution level either on the creation side, whether performing or composing, or on the um, engineering side, whatever it may be. There's a, a level of what is a higher level. It doesn't mean the other side is not worth liking and, 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 and taking in. 
But I, I think you, for me, you can like codify some sort of better version. I see what you mean in terms of things like technical execution. There are some things that are objective, like the speed of something, the accuracy of notes. Um, but I feel like a lot of what you described is probably just a personal subjective judgment call. Like how can you decide if something is a better composition or better creatively than another? I can't. I mean, I have my opinions, but what am I, who am I to say? I, I agree. It's true. Everything is on some sort of scale of like, you know, here's where I come from. Here's what I think is good. And here's what I think is, is probably bad um, for sure. And someone else who just who only loves Taylor Swift, which is me. I love Taylor Swift may have a different viewpoint on hearing Beethoven nine than I would coming from where I came I've come from. OK, so you like Taylor Swift. Love T.S. And I'm going back to what you said about how you love bad sci fi. Do you yeah. consider Taylor Swift to be like Oh, in your I love bad pop music category? No, no, that's good for me. So that, you do? That's, okay. that's a very high level of execution. Like, and I think that, that she is so unique in what she does for me. Because I knew you were trouble when you walked in. So shame on me now. Blew me to places I've never been. Till you put me down. So a lot of people would consider pop music to be, quote unquote, their guilty pleasure. Or, or things like that, so. Yeah, I, I think that pop music is the hardest music to write because it's so easy to sound like the person next to you, but the 1% who stands out, it's such a subtle difference that's actually almost genius level for me. I appreciate pop <laughs> I also appreciate pop music, but I just bring that up to say that you called some things better or worse, and that is another, that is one thing that a lot of people, especially in the classical world, might call worse. Hmm. I think there's a lot more around a good pop artist, a big pop artist, and there's there's marketing, there's appearance, there's youth, there's uh, dance, there's all kinds of things around it that support the endorsement of all these things, propping this this person up above someone who just writes in their living room that may have great songs. Anything that does that affect how the average listener takes the music in? You think? Oh yeah, because most people won't hear it. Mm. So just, just about reach. Um, you've got a million dollar marketing budget and a, a whole team behind you, then you're going to get heard. And I will say that the first time I hear a song, sometimes I'm lukewarm about it. But if I keep being exposed exactly. to the same song, which normally just happens with pop music, I f start to fall in love with it. It starts to enter my system. It starts to become a part of my day. And then I look back on it nostalgically because it reminds me of my life at that point. So there is something mm -hmm. to what Daniel is saying. This is, I feel like, Thomas, we have to make this a future counterpoint conversation, like a deep dive into pop music. Yeah, um, I love it. I love it. But going back to whether things can be good or bad, I was trying to think, okay, are there some clear lines? Like, of course, this is subjective, but can we draw a clear line ever? And the only thing I was really coming up with is if if a song or lyrics are harmful or hate have like hate speech or things like that, of course that's unfortunately subjective to a lot of people as well. Well, my dad is a survivor of the Cambodian killing fields and Khmer Rouge songs and they were the, the party that took over and were responsible for killing millions of people they certainly had their own brainwash music mm -hmm. when when people propaganda. were working in the fields, you know, propaganda. So when I personally play Cambodian music, I try to, I mean, I definitely avoid um, any sort of songs that were written, you know, for that purpose. So is that, is could that be considered bad music? I don't know. I mean, but I have if, my opinion, but... 
take that piece li- of music. That's more lyric, per- right? You know? That's more lyric I based than music more, based. I guess. I guess. But then if the melody becomes becomes seeped and it's there could be a melody association too. Yeah. You're right though. Lyrics hmm, maybe yeah. this comes down to if there are lyrics or not. Yeah, the Star Spangled Banner was a um, British drinking song. Really? But I wouldn't say a drinking song makes what? something bad. <laughs> but it's just, you know, <laughs> yeah. but it has a completely different meaning. Mm-hmm. The different lyrics had a lyric, but it's the same music. Mm. So we take a pop, I mean, a classical song by Mozart. We put over TS lyrics, the Taylor Swift lyrics, and then we remarket Mozart, you know, marketing <laughs> team. And next thing you know, we're, we're selling Mozart big time here. I don't think Mozart needs a marketing team. I think Mozart's doing fine. Brahms, Beethoven, who needs it? <laughs> <laughs> what you said about liking things that are bad or worse I find myself saying that too sometimes where I'll say, oh, it's such a guilty pleasure. Or even I will listen to childhood favorites, like maybe from the 2000s, and realize, wow, I really loved this song at the time, and I don't actually love it anymore. Like, I love it nostalgically, but do I think it's great still? No. And Taste changes. Yeah, I do. I guess taste does change, but also... The time in your life when you hear something, you might think it's good, and then later you realize, okay, maybe the craft of it wasn't as good. In in my efforts to understand, not good and bad, but just understand music and how it connects to people, I know what I like, and I think because I'm so analytical about every aspect in engineering or a bass tone or a, you know, a guitar part or harmony or something, uh, a melody, melodic development in a composition, I'm really looking for those things or the overuse of repetition hmm. that kills me <laughs> right but, like that drum like that bo- yeah, that beat or, you were talking or about or in a pop song to go yeah 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 do you hear me say this 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 I, I kind of like that I, I kind of like that I kind of like that 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 it speaks to me <laughs> oh the but, rest of the interview <laughs> the rest of this episode will just be three repetitions really? on every word really? <laughs> But what I do try to do is separate my tastes. I try to be a little bit more objective and understand how and why that connects with someone. So fast food society, like how long is a YouTube clip? It can only be like a minute or 30 seconds or Instagram clip. But attention spans nowadays, emails, like everything is so fast and quickly digested. Like you have that many seconds, two seconds, to get someone's attention. So you repeat the thing three times. But people did not write like that. Okay, a pop song like Somewhere Over the Rainbow. That's an eight-bar melody. Who writes an eight-bar melody? That's a major scale descending over the course of eight bars with probably three motifs going in that beautiful eight-bar phrase. That's a composition to me. Mm -hmm. I can listen to Send in the Clowns, which is, you know, like a, a beautiful theme, lyrically incredible, but it's a long melody, you know? No one's going to take spend that amount of time, 30 seconds, to digest or learn or become familiar with or love something that long. So it has to be a one-bar phrase and a repeated note three times. And every time I hear that, because I'm aware of it, every time I hear someone do that in a song, I just immediately shut off because I know the purpose and function of that pop style of writing. The same with a, hey-o, 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 hey hey hey-o, in Americana, whatever. Like, as soon as someone does that, I, I can't even hear 
another note. So you're shattering the glass on all the listeners. They're gonna be like, all I hear now is three notes in every pop song. And every time I mention that to someone, they say that I ruined them. They're like, no! Because I know, because I love that song by the whatever, you know, hey, oh, hey. Although (laughs) Although a lot of what you're saying, of course, and you realize it is your personal taste and you try not to let your biases get in the way of objectively criticizing it. And that's really important because we all have those particular biases. We all have our pet peeves with music, with anything really. And that might not be what another person thinks. I'm always trying to just, if I were to say a clear line, I would say there's no such thing as good music or bad music. And if something is bad music to me, but good music to someone else, then I just, there's no way I can judge them. Because especially if a piece of music affects someone else, if it makes them feel something, then I can't argue with someone's feeling. And if that has the effect of making someone feel something inspired, pumped up, um, you know, nostalgic, then that is powerful. And there is something to explore in that, even if the techniques used to get there are not the best ones to me. Absolutely. I think we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us, Daniel. Listeners, we want to hear what you think. Do you think some music is good and some music is bad? We're sure you have some more nuanced thoughts than that. Yes, please tweet us at underscore FM. Find us on Instagram at underscore FM. Visit our Facebook page or even email us at info at underscore dot FM. And of course, we also have the Facebook group underscore society where you can connect with other listeners, vote on future topics and give us music suggestions. This is also the easiest way to get the show notes and enter the discussion. Simply look up underscore society on Facebook or go to facebook.com slash groups slash underscore society. Now it is a closed group, but the price of entry is just to recommend us a song. Before we wrap up today, it's time to leave you with something old, new, borrowed and blue, where we share our current musical obsessions. Thomas, you're kicking it off. Yes, so I'm going to go with Old and Borrowed today. And recently I did a concert on a Moog Sub 37, which is this old synthesizer covered in knobs and and buttons. And it's um, a synthesizer where you create the sound on the instrument. The moment I played this thing, I was like, that's the classic 80s sound from pop songs, television, movies. And my ear went straight to Stranger Things soundtrack. And of course, I went down a little rabbit hole here, looked it up. Um, Two composers on Stranger Things is Kyle Dixon and Michael Stein. um, And they're both members of a Texas-based analog synth band called Survive. And all their music sounds like 80s vintage horror sci-fi, basically the soundtrack from Stranger Things, and it's awesome. So my old is this Moog Sub 37, and my borrowed is finding this kind of borrowed sound of this band Survive. Um, from the most recent album called RR7349. Their first track is called AHB. It's pretty grooving. It will definitely be in our show notes. And Chrysanthi with something new. This is a song actually recommended by someone in the Underscore Society. It was what they suggested to join the group. And I have fallen in love with this song. It's called Feelings Change by Yeji. What I like about this song is it breaks 
a traditional music theory rule that we learn about in school, and it doesn't matter what it is, but it's called Parallel Fourths. This song does it all the time, and it's wonderful. I love how it's executed, and honestly, screw the rules if they're not serving the song. So anyway, Break definitely, the rules. definitely recommend this, this song. It's a beautiful vocal piece. It's very haunting. And Something Blue. Something Blue this week is one of my very favorite albums, The Blue Notebooks by Max Richter. And a guest person on it is Tilda Swinton. Everyone carries a room about inside them. This fact can be proved by means of the sense of hearing. This is a 2004 album. It is a protest album about Iraq, a meditation on violence, as Max Richter says, both the violence that I had personally experienced around me as a child and the violence of war. So this album features readings, like spoken word readings, from Franz Kafka's The Blue Octavo Notebooks and some other texts. One of the songs on it, On the Nature of Daylight, is actually very famous, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to this have heard this song, even if you don't recognize the name. It's in right? commercials. Oh, I, lo- it's, I love that song. It's, it's everywhere now. Highly recommend this album. Awesome. Of course, we'll list everything mentioned in the show notes if you want to check them out. In the show notes, we will also link to a playlist, which includes all the music we talked about today, plus a couple other recommendations. And that does it for today's episode of Underscore, the podcast that explores the innovative music of artists who create beyond the boundaries of classical. Thank you for joining us. And please check us out on Instagram and Twitter at underscore FM. We like to post interesting questions and street art and studio photos and perhaps the occasional Twitter thread. And also, be sure to join our closed Facebook group, Underscore Society, if you want to dive even deeper, connect with other listeners, and get the show notes. Once again, you've been listening to Underscore. I'm Chrysanthi Tan. I'm Thomas Kotcheff. And we will see you next time. 